start then. Um, thanks for coming back to listen to this lecture on Julius Caesar. So, Julius Caesar comes from a period of extraordinary output by Shakespeare at the very end of the 16th century. As James Shapiro has discussed brilliantly in his book 1599, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare, between the autumn of 1598 and the end of 1599, you can pretty confidently date much ado about nothing, as you like it, Henry V, probably initial work on Hamlet, as well as Julius Caesar. And that's quite an interesting grouping. We tend to always think about Julius Caesar uh, in terms of its Roman themes and alongside other Roman plays, uh, Corridanus, Antony and Cleopatra, with which obviously shares some narrative uh, connections, uh, and maybe Titus Andronicus. There are lectures on these plays already. What I'm going to try and suggest in this lecture is some of the ways in which Julius Caesar might fit in that 1599 cluster, rather than in that um, already pretty well-known kind of Romanitas uh, sort of uh, narrative which fits it with other Roman plays. Okay, so the play itself. Julius Caesar tells us about the assassination by Cassius and Brutus of the Roman leader, Julius Caesar. Caesar is killed in the capital, right in the middle of the play. Rival orations over his body persuade the people of Rome to interpret this not as a road to their freedom, but as an act of violent treachery. The assassins are driven from Rome. They're ultimately defeated in a battle with the forces of Mark Antony and Octavius Caesar. Now, it's quite hard to give a more elaborate summary, since the question of what all this means and how to interpret it is, in fact, the whole business of the play. So I've tried to avoid the question of judgment, but it's clearly something which was always hanging over the assassination of Caesar. It was a classic classroom exercise in the 16th century grammar school, one that I'm sure Shakespeare did, which was to argue both sides of the question, was Brutus justified to kill Caesar? So it's a kind of exemplary question uh, in how you might use rhetoric persuasively to make one case uh, or another, that grammar school staple called in utranque partem tranque partem, arguing both sides of the proposition. So the question of whether Julius Caesar's assassination is justified, and even the language we use to talk about it, uh, Brutus and Cassius are often called conspirators, uh, and we know from more modern takes on this that you know one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist, one man's conspirator uh, is another man's kind of politician or, or whatever. So the language of that is already quite difficult, I think. But the question of the play's own politics and its position on the offence it depicts is an, is an uneasy one. And that makes Julius Caesar a particularly interesting play to think about through its performance history, where performances have tended to want quite clearly to identify goodies and baddies, or to identify the shape, the moral shape of this play, by, for instance, uh, having Brutus and Cassius and the others in as Nazi black shirts, or having them as kind of Che Guevara, kind of freedom uh, people. You can see that they're very, very different uh, kinds of uh, judgment. Uh, and certainly in the theatre, the play has done that kind of political work, which has tended to clarify what in the text is rather unclear. 
So the question I want to structure this lecture around, kind of, is that old one, was Brutus uh, justified in killing Caesar, but not quite. So I want to try and talk about the next murder we see moments later on stage. And I'm conscious this, is, this looks like um, picking the wrong bit of the play to focus on. Uh, and let's see whether that works or not. So immediately after the death of Caesar, which is clearly the most important thing in the play, a group of Roman citizens exit the stage with that ultimate political trophy, the body, the body of Caesar. The body of Caesar is a very interesting prop uh, in this play. Uh, I think we get that recalled when uh, we get Polonius's body as a prop. You know that there's a, a relation between those two plays uh, when Hamlet and Polonius are talking about uh, the play of Julius Caesar that seem to be recalling uh, the past of the Chamberlain's Men, a play that's previously been on. And I think Caesar, thinking about Caesar and Polonius as the same actor, uh, gives us quite an interesting take on, uh, on what Caesar, how Caesar might have been performed. But if you're interested in anything like kind of object theory, thing theory, uh, props, the kind of phenomenology of stuff, um, Caesar's body is a really interesting case. It's not quite a person and not quite a prop. Um, but, a, but a lump of stuff that needs to be moved about uh, and over which there's a huge amount of interpretive energy. So the Roman citizens exit the stage with the body of Caesar, and then we get a tiny vignette of the social violence which seems to have been unleashed by the assassination. A character we have not previously met or heard of is intercepted by what the text calls for plebeians, for uh, common people, uh, people of Rome. He is interrogated briefly about who he is and why he is abroad. He gives his name and vocation, Sinner the Poet. Now the name Sinner already echoes in the name, in the, sorry, the name Sinner already echoes in the play. It's the name, as the plebeians immediately seize on, of one of the conspirators. Sinner the poet haplessly attempts to escape by saying he's not Sinner the conspirator, but Sinner the poet, but he's nevertheless set upon by the mob with cries of, tear him, tear him. There's no stage direction in the folio, which is the only early text of Julius Caesar from 1623, but it's generally assumed that Sinner the poet is murdered. So my question is, what, why? What's the purpose of this small detail? Uh, and a detail which has almost always been omitted from productions of the play before the middle of the 20th century. So in thinking about the role of Sinner the poet, I want to try and think about a number of related issues we might think about as formal, structural, internal to the architecture of the play. And I want also to try and think about the representation of the poet in Shakespeare's works. It's hard, it's hard not to be drawn to the idea that uh, a poet figure coming on stage is some sort of self-reflexive cameo of, of a kind, but let's try and see where we can get uh, with that. <coughs> but first I want to try and think about structure. Pretty much every commentary on Julius Caesar points out that Julius Caesar is a play named for a character who is killed in the middle. Caesar appears in only five scenes of the play. And although he continues as a ghost and as the abiding presence in the play's political imaginary, there are loads and loads of references, ongoing references to Caesar in the language of the play, right up to its final lines, it's nevertheless true that this is a play where the climax is definitely, I think, in the middle. We have a play organised around the build-up to and then the aftermath of a climactic event. 
So in most of the other lectures, I talk about plays which are teleological, which have to get to the end. And in some ways, comedy is a very teleological genre. Uh, there's a point where we know we've just got to sort it all out, everybody's got to get married. Often comedies are quite sort of pragmatic about that um, and realise, OK, this is what's got to happen now. So that's a kind of teleological structure which says this is where we've got to get to. It doesn't really quite matter uh, what happens uh, in, in, in between. But this is a play which I think is unteleological. It's not the end that it's trying to get to, but the middle. Now, that might seem quite obvious, but maybe it's useful to see how different this is from the way Shakespeare structures a similar story type in other plays. Shakespeare deals with regicide. Uh, Caesar isn't quite a king, and in fact, the start of the play is about him refusing to become king. But nevertheless, the assassination of the political leader, in some sense, the person who embodies uh, the, the, the sense of the state, that's a, that's a story type that obviously Shakespeare deals with on a number of occasions. Let's take two examples, one which comes before Julius Caesar and one afterwards. So the one that's before, let's take Richard II. So Richard II, too, is about a play in which a powerful leader, maybe a too powerful leader, uh, is toppled, is assassinated. But in Richard II, Richard's own death comes right at the end of the play. So there are two immediate effects of that on the play's politics. Firstly, it constructs the narrative as a tragedy. You know, a story which is structured around the life and death of one person is a tragedy. We know that. And whether we feel sympathy with Richard or with his political nemesis, Bolingbroke, the structure of that play is in the kind of medieval form of tragedy, sometimes called De Casibus, the fall of princes, De Casibus. So that's the first, first effect of having Richard's death right at the end of the play. The second effect, though, is that there are no consequences of the regicide. Even though Bolingbroke says, or as you know, as King Henry says, you know, I feel terrible about this, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I feel so guilty, I didn't really mean him to be killed. Uh, there's a, so there's a sense of guilt, but it's too near the end of the play for us really uh, to get anything, uh, anything more than that. So there are no uh, immediate consequences. All the things that were so uh, terribly predicted about what would happen if Richard was killed don't come to pass within that play. So, Julius, so uh, Richard II, then, which predates Julius Caesar in Shakespeare's writing career, it's a play which is really all about the build-up to the assassination of the leader. Okay, so it's all the build-up. Let's take an alternative look at a play which comes after Julius Caesar about the same thing, Macbeth. Macbeth is a play which is all about the consequences of assassination. Helpfully, it gives us the word assassination uh, as well. So it's about the unravelling of political and psychological integrity across the four acts, which follow the murder of the king, Duncan. So in some ways, Macbeth isn't at all interested in, in the build-up or how to, you know, how to do it or how to get on with it or why, to, why doing it. It's all about the consequences in the aftermath. So it's the structural and the ethical opposite of Richard II. It's all about the punishment, uh, psychological punishment, the kind of political punishment that's meted on Macbeth for what he does. In between these two versions, then, we've got Julius Caesar balanced on the body of Caesar as a kind of plot fulcrum between build-up and aftermath. Now, related, I think, to these structural questions is the question of the antagonist or hero. Both Richard II and Julius Caesar are named for the murdered ruler, 
Macbeth takes its name from the assassin. So we can see something really important has changed about where, where our interest is. Are we interested in the person uh, who, is, who, you know, who, who is being, uh, who's being killed, or are we interested in the person who's going to kill them? Mid-20th century critics were curiously preoccupied with the question of whether Julius Caesar ought more properly to be called the tragedy of Brutus. It's not a particularly interesting question, but they were very, kind of, very worried about it. But I guess it does point to the fact that this is a play where we see Shakespeare's interest moving from the person who is being killed, the Richard II figure, to the person who's doing the killing, the Macbeth figure. <coughs> Brutus muses in soliloquy on the murder of Julius Caesar in some ways which very, very clearly anticipate Macbeth. Alone in his orchard in Act 2, Scene 1, Brutus famously begins his speech about Caesar's death with its conclusion, it must be by his death. It must be by his death. And he goes on to justify the killing, not with what Caesar has already done, but by what he might go on to do. Therefore, think him as a serpent's egg, which hatched would, as his kind, grow mischievous and kill him in the shell. What's hatching here, then, is not just the murder of Caesar, but the play Macbeth. Like the later king murderer, Brutus cannot bring himself to name his deed. It must be by his death. It's directly like Macbeth's, if it were done when tis done, for well it were done quickly. Both of them use a kind of uh, uh, a pronoun, it, in place of a noun which they, which they can't themselves articulate. And as Brutus puts it, since Cassius first did whet me against Caesar, I have not slept between the acting of a dreadful thing and the first motion all the interim is like a phantasma or hideous dream that sleepless Macbeth is already here in Shakespeare's sights even Bruce's wife Portia aspires to be Lady Macbeth but unfortunately she's trapped in a kind of history play rather like Hotspur's wife Kate in Henry IV that's to say she's not allowed to do anything so, this is all to say that the very structure of Julius Caesar confirms its ethical equivocation, caught between a kind of tragedy of uh, the De Casibus, the ruler who is brought down, the Richard II model, and moving towards a more kind of psychological view of uh, the assassin or the, the person who's doing something clearly wrong, uh, the Macbeth model. And the play itself shifts, like the Roman populace, away from a focus on the conspirators to a focus on their revengers. The balance of dramatic power in Julius Caesar changes like the balance of political power. No individual character rises to displace Caesar as the play's central focus. So the question of the interpretation of Julius Caesar's assassination is already live. It's already live in the reception of classical history at the end of the 16th century. That question that's in the schoolboy's mind, was Brutus justified? And the question is already self-consciously there in the minds of Julius Caesar's killers in the play. So the play, that's to say, knows about its reception even as it purports to be running through things in real time. That's true of all of Shakespeare's history plays, I think, uh, that, that they, uh, they both know that we know it's already happened even as they try and show us uh, how it is happening for the first time. In part, this is because the conspirators are engaged in the kind of primal scene of English classicism, the murder of Julius Caesar, uh, which is key to the accounts of Roman Empire, which were so in 
entirely foundational for the whole idea of Western culture. And in part, they're kind of wrestling with a very negative medieval um, history of reception when, for example, Dante had placed Brutus at the very centre of hell in his inferno. Brutus is there uh, feeding uh, with Satan along with Cassius and Judas. They're the only people who are in this special, most terrible of places. So we all already know this story, that's to say, and the characters in the play know it too. Caesar, Brutus and the rest are already subject to what the critic Linda Chance has really interestingly called notorious identity, a kind of overdetermined fame, notorious identity. Chance is talking in particular about Antony and Cleopatra, about Troilus and Cressida, and about Richard III, but you could easily develop what she's talking about, I think, in relation to Caesar and Brutus. And in Julius Caesar, they themselves know that. As they look on Caesar's bleeding corpse, the assassins discuss how this act will look to the future, the very future in which it's being presented. So this is Brutus. Stoop, Romans, stoop, and let us bathe our hands in Caesar's blood up to the elbows and besmear our swords. Then walk we forth even to the marketplace, and waving our red weapons o'er our heads, let's all cry, peace, freedom, and liberty. Stoop then and wash, says Cassius. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? How many times shall Caesar bleed in sport? It's a really interesting moment, right at the time when the murder of Caesar is, as it were, actually happening. We've got a strong sense that this is a reproduction of something which has already happened. And the act of murder is already understood as an interpretive act. It's already a play. The states unborn and accents yet unknown are the England and the English in which the play is being performed. Present and future are ironically collapsed as the bloodstained assassins pose for the camera of history. Let us be sacrificers, not butchers, Brutus tells his fellow conspirators. Let's be sacrificers, but not butchers. The question of how to present and interpret the act is intrinsic to its planning and commission. This is a piece of political theatre. Julius Caesar has always been a play about politics, but uh, the acts within it are already uh, acts of political theatre. It's a series of sound bites, something already, always already staged. And the play, I think, is deeply conscious of being a play it is both the act and the representation of that act. At the centre of Julius Caesar is a great rhetorical set piece. This is the thing everybody knows about the play, it's the thing everybody talks about. Mark Antony's speech over the body of Caesar. Mark Antony's speech works to turn the play's allegiances decisively back to the heirs of Caesar and away from his assassins. But long before this moment, this pivotal moment, Right from the beginning of the play, I think this is a work deeply conscious of how events need to be interpreted. It presents numerous examples of a distinctly interpretive conflict. We might think of Renaissance paintings like Holbein's The Ambassadors, which has a kind of anamorphic, uh, what's called an anamorphic uh, element to it. You look at at it from different perspectives and it looks different. Uh, 
the anamorphic Renaissance painting might be a kind of visual metaphor for this play of perspectives. Calpurnia's dream in Julius Caesar is a striking example of this process. Caesar reports that Calpurnia has had uh, a terrible dream. She dreamt tonight she saw my statue, which like a fountain with an hundred spouts did run pure blood. And many lusty Romans came smiling and did bathe their hands in it. And these does she apply for warnings and portents and evils imminent. And on her knee hath begged that I will stay at home today. So Calpurnia has dreamt that Caesar's statue runs with blood. We all know, of course, that Caesar is going to be murdered. So when Calpurnia's dream is told us, I mean, we kind of know it's true. Um, uh, but we, know that, we also know that nothing can happen to stop this. So it's not going to be... Uh, it's not going to affect what Caesar does. It has the curious quality of prophecy and retrospection at the same time. So within the fiction, it's a prophecy. Within our reception of the fiction, it is an act of retrospection. But in Julius Caesar, uh, Decius nimbly reinterprets the dream as a metaphor. This dream is all a misinterpreted, he says comfortingly. It was a vision fair and fortunate. Your statue spouting blood in many pipes, in which so many smiling Romans bathe, signifies that from you great Rome shall suck reviving blood, and that great men shall press for tinctures, stains, relics, and cognizance. This, by Calpurnia's dream, is signified. So reinterpreting the bloody image as not real but symbolic persuades Caesar that he should indeed go to the capital, where, of course, he's going to be turned into exactly that fountain of blood in which his murderers bathe his hands. So the play has already established that the interpretation of acts and words is its most crucial theme. Decius's language is all about kind of literary criticism. Um, uh, it's all a misinterpreted. This, by Calpurnia's dream, is signified. This is the language of criticism um, being, being deployed in the play itself. The play then has established that the interpretation of acts and words is its most crucial theme, and further, that it is very hard to distinguish the act itself from its interpretations. We're somewhere in the territory of Jean Baudrillard's infamous contention that the Gulf War never took place. What we saw was merely a stand-in, endless media simulacra behind which there was nothing at all. Here in Julius Caesar, Shakespeare stages that very nothingness which is behind our interpretations, sometimes refusing to give us access to the event itself, only to its subsequent interpretations. The play actually begins uh, in this mode. Brutus and Cassius are talking about Caesar's tendency to tyranny and despotism. This conversation is punctuated by offstage shouts and cheers. Brutus and Cassius interpret these as the response when the people offer the crown to Caesar which he keeps rejecting. This doesn't reassure Brutus and Cassius about how ambitious he is, even though on the face of it you would think it ought to. He's offered the crown and he rejects it. But since we don't see the scene for ourselves, we can't begin to judge whether this is simply politic on Caesar's part. He rejects it while making it quite clear that really he wants it, or genuine, he does not want to be king. The dialectic between showing, mimesis, and telling, diegesis, is always intrinsic to theatre. And therefore, I think it is always worth looking quite closely at what Shakespeare decides uh, not to show us. 
There's something also about, uh, there's something which later cinema, I think, is very clear about, uh, that when we're not shown something, we're kind of desperately wanting to see it. These close and insistent interpretive examples, what we might call the play's hermeneutic consciousness, mean we're already primed then for that great act of reinterpretation, which is Mark Antony's famous Friends, Romans and Countrymen speech in Act 3. Antony's skill is in part to persuade by introducing new information about Caesar. He has left 75 drachmas to each Roman citizen in his will, as well as his parks and villas by the Tiber as a recreation ground. We never know whether that's true, even though Antony is waving about the, the will as a, as a document. There's no corroboration of that. It's tendentious diegesis, not mimesis. Of course, I know, and Shakespeare clearly knows, that diegesis showing can always also be misleading. It's not the case that, not just the case that to be told something is therefore is to be suspicious of it, but to be shown something is to have a kind of authentic relation to it. I guess that's what's going on with ocular proof uh, in Othello. But Mark Antony's long scene, a slowing down after the violence of the murder itself, works to set out the incompatibility of his evidence from Caesar's will about his generosity against the claims Brutus makes about Caesar's ambition, all the time ironically emphasising Brutus is an honourable man. Simple repetition of this phrase does some of the work of reinterpretation here. Each time Antony says, Brutus is an honourable man, it means something slightly different until it has gradually completed the 180 degree turn to mean quite its opposite. So it's taken a while to get to the death of Sinner the poet, just as it takes the play a while, but I think we're maybe now a little bit more ready to think about it. The death of Sinner the poet, that's to say, comes within a context of deeply contested interpretation. It erupts as a short sequence of some 35 lines after Antony's deliberately extended and dilated oratory of the previous long scene. So we have a scene which is about 300 lines maybe, so uh, about 20 minutes perhaps, uh, 25 minutes even, and then a scene... Uh, of 35, uh, 35 lines, so uh, just a few minutes. So it's a structural contrast in both those ways. It's about action without words or about the failure of language to effect action. So Sinner attempts to plead for his life, uh, but that has no success at all. So that's very far from the measured, um, extended eloquence by which Antony persuades the, the same mob, the same people, the same plebeians to do what he wants. The immediate product of Antony's clever, elevated rhetoric seems, therefore, to be the barbarity of mob violence, what Antony has persuaded the plebeians to do uh, by uh, means of his rhetoric is uh, to turn on the conspirators or people who bear their names. After the overdetermined death of Caesar about which characters within the play and in that much more extensive cultural discourse have talked and interpreted so much. So after all that, we get this bewildering and random death. But it's also a death which perhaps recaps what we have just seen in miniature. In his short scene, Sinner, like Caesar or Calpurnia, has a sinister and unsettling dream. I dreamt tonight that I did feast with Caesar and things unluckily charged my fantasy. I have no will to wander forth of doors, yet something leads me forth. 
We've already had one of those kind of fated people coming out uh, to meet their own death. And Sinner, for some reason, is somehow is recapping that. Uh, he, too, lives by the capital. The plebeians tear him. They set on him as a pack, just as the conspirators set on Caesar. So, in some sense, this short scene is a recap or shortened version of what we've just been through, a kind of political echo or aftershock. It would be fabulous to double Sinner the Poet with the Caesar actor, although I think it would be difficult to do. It would take some nifty editorial <coughs> footwork, given that the body of Caesar has sort of passed in the corridor at the entrance of Sinner. But thinking about doubling is always a way to think theatrically about how a localised or cameo character might be connected to and gain weight from other plots, as when the ghost of old Hamlet plays Fortinbras or the gravedigger, or most famously when Cordelia and the Fool are doubled in Lear. But whenever we get a real echo in early modern plays, think perhaps about the Duchess of Malfi, for instance, the purpose of the echo is usually to mock. By repeating the ends of words or lines, the echo disembodies language sends it back kind of meaninglessly to its speaker and makes that speaker look foolish, turning the speaking subject into a kind of automaton. It may be that this visual echo in Julius Caesar serves something of the same purpose. It mocks or undermines. There's a humour in this scene, as well as, or perhaps in conjunction with, its abrupt or, or absurd horror. The plebeians fire a sequence of questions at Sinner. What is your name? Whether are you going? Where do you dwell? And then, most randomly of all, perhaps, are you a married man or a bachelor? Answer every man directly. I am briefly, I am wisely, I am truly your best. The repetition here is clearly ridiculous. There are so many questions <coughs> and not time for Sinner to answer. Uh, no gap for his answers to the questions. Uh, and he then answers the questions all in one speech, repeating them um, to, to answer every man directly and briefly. Hmm. Uh, so you know, there, there, there's a kind of comedy or farce about the way uh, the speeches unfold here. Perhaps Marx's dictum on repeating history might work here. Writing about the coup of Louis Napoleon in France in 1851, coup which quite interestingly is uh, related to uh, Julius Caesar, uh, it's codenamed Rubicon, uh, which is part of Caesar's own um, move to power. But Marx cites Hegel uh, in a brilliant sort of casual kind of way. Hegel remarks somewhere <coughs> that all the great world historical facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. So Hegel remarks somewhere that all the great world historic facts and personages appear, so to speak, twice. He forgot to add the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. So does Sinner the poet represent the repetition as farce of the tragic Caesar? Is the humour of this scene intended as a kind of relief after the extended stress of what has gone before? Or does it establish the jesting savagery of mob rule? Is it, that's to say, a contrast with or a clarification of what has gone before? Are Brutus and his co-conspirators more likely to look like sacrificers when they're compared to the butchers of Sinner? Or are both acts of violence 
seem to be the same. Sinner, the poet's death, is cued by these previous interpretive acts as a symbol, or a metonym perhaps in more literary terms, the part for the whole, uh, some kind of snapshot of something larger than itself. But it's missing that analysis that elsewhere the play carefully elaborates. No one has time to interpret it, so it's left hanging. It's an emblem without its motto, or a parable without the gloss. Now, in large part, the scene makes clear that it is because Sinner has the misfortune to share his name with one of the conspirators that he is killed. The plebeians are perhaps unwittingly carrying out an act of dramatic hygiene. It is not good for a play to have two characters with the same name. Something similar happens at the end of a contemporaneous play with which Julius Caesar may seem to have almost nothing in common, as you like it. The dominant theme in As You Like It is the quarrel between brothers. Maybe there is something similarly fraternal in the relationship between the heirs of Caesar, Brutus, and Mark Antony. In As You Like It, Oliver, the bad brother, and Orlando, the good one, are prominent characters who we meet uh, extensively in the play. But early on, there is mention of a third brother, Jaques. Now, something has gone wrong here, for the play already has an apparently entirely unrelated character who is already called Jaques, the melancholic courtier who is part of Duke Senior's Robin Hoodish court in the forest. When Jaques, the brother of Orlando and Oliver, finally enters at the end of the play, it's a very funny momentary standoff between him and melancholic Jaques. The message is that he's breaking the rules. Why has he come to somewhere where there's already somebody who's got his name? One character one name. Whether there are two characters with the same name, it's clear that one must see. That's in some way the structure of the play. That's why Prince Hal has got to kill Hotspur at the end of Henry IV, part one. It just isn't room in the play for another Henry. It's also why he's got to kill his father. You've got to be the only Henry uh, in the play. Now, names in Shakespeare are really interesting properties. Often they're much more evident to us as readers of the text than they would be in the theatre. My favourite example is that of Viola in Twelfth Night. When we read the play, we absolutely know who she is because we're always reading her name. Uh, in fact, in the play, her name is never spoken until she and Sebastian meet right at the end. Nobody in the play, and the play itself, in fact, doesn't seem to know what her name is. It's worth doing a search of the actual speeches in a play to see how emphatically a character is named in the play world. Lots of people in plays, we know what they're called, but there isn't a, there isn't a purpose for their name in the, in the actual story, and they're never mentioned by name by anyone else. If we do that search for the sinners in Julius Caesar, there's obviously something going on about what sinner sounds like. Um, I'm not quite sure what that is. But if we do a search for the sinners in Julius Caesar, we can see there are eight references to sinner by name in the spoken words of the play before the second sinner enters into the frame. So we're quite conscious that this is a name which has already been taken up in the fraternity of the conspirators. In fact, this is a play in which names, proper names, are very, very emphatic. It's part of the monumentalizing or already known quality with which these great figures resonate, that they often talk about themselves in the third person, as if they are already their own reputations and legends, back to that idea of notorious identity. So Sin of the Poet thus emerges into onomastic territory that is already occupied. The plebeians work quickly to eradicate the usurper. Perhaps they do their work too well. Sinner, the first, the conspirator, never reappears after this point either. So perhaps the two figures weren't so distinct. 
So it's his name then that's the headline reason for the attack on Sinner. But the other reason that I want to just spend a bit of time on before we finish is, of course, the fact that he's a poet. Gary Taylor points out that of the two mentions of the death of Sinner in North's translation of Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans, the source uh, for Julius Caesar, uh, as it was, we heard a couple of weeks ago, for Coriolanus. <coughs> only one of those two mentions identifies him as a poet, and only in passing. It's not important to Plutarch that this, this murdered sinner is a poet. And in fact, it's more important to Plutarch that, that, that sinner is a friend of Caesar's, which we don't, uh, we don't get quite so strongly uh, when sinner says, I, I dreamt I, I did feast with Caesar here in Shakespeare's play. We don't know whether that's because it's likely or because it's completely unlikely. Uh, is this somebody saying, you know, I about, I was with a famous person uh, uh, last night. So Shakespeare, uh, that's to say, brings out the poetness of Sinner uh, and emphasises it. He keeps saying, uh, I'm Sinner the poet. And in fact, uh, I'm Sinner the poet, I'm Sinner the poet, one of the plebeians says, tear him for his bad verses. Tear him for his bad verses. It's another point which must be kind of funny, I think, in some way. So Taylor suggests, therefore, that it's significant that Shakespeare brings the poet to the fore in this scene of mindless cultural violence. In Julius Caesar, it seems as if the poet is innocent. There's no suggestion that he himself has been involved in politics, just that he shares the name of somebody who has. We don't know anything about what his poems are like, although the plebeians uh, assume that they're not very good. It's as if here, to be a poet is, by definition, to be apolitical. To be a poet is to be the mistaken, uh, <coughs> the mistaken target of mob violence uh, in a scene where clearly he cannot have been uh, the real, uh, he cannot have been the, the, the kind of person who, who they really needed to go for. It's somehow like vigilantes targeting paediatricians. Pulling to pieces, uh, uh, pulling to pieces sin of the poet recalls perhaps um, one of the Renaissance's uh, clearest uh, pieces of iconography about poetry, uh, the myth of Orpheus, uh, Orpheus the musician, poet figure, mentioned by Shakespeare on lots of occasions, who was himself torn apart by a baying mob. So there's something about poets and being uh, pulled to pieces, which maybe is important. Perhaps we're supposed to think of Sinner as the ultimate scapegoat. The poet gets it, uh, even though he's done nothing to deserve it. So he becomes the figure who's more obviously uh, identified usually with the central tragic protagonist, the figure onto whom social and, to some extent, ritualistic fears are projected. But Sin of the Poet seems like the play's ultimate innocent bystander, in the wrong place, at the wrong time, caught up in events with which he has nothing to do. And how far, I wonder, should we see his vocation as poet as significant in that representation? Now, poets in Shakespeare's plays tend to be objects of fun, mostly because they're amateurs, they're people who turn to poetry, uh, usually badly, uh, and usually as a, a source of humour. Uh, and that's particularly true in these plays around 1599, with which I began. Lovers, in particular, are susceptible to become very bad poets. When Orlando writes his lame poetry on the trees of the Forest of Arden in As You Like It, Touchstone bemoans the very false gallop of verses. And in fact, there's lots in As You Like It about what is poetry, what's good poetry. Uh, uh, Touchstone and Audrey have a, um, a sort of um, rural, rustic guide sort of um, 
what's that thing called? Sydney's defence of poetry. Somehow they go through, you know, poetry pretending and uh, all that stuff. So they have this uh, this discussion about what poetry is. There's a reference to Marlowe. Uh, so as you like, it is a play very kind of preoccupied with with the idea of the poetic. Um, in Much Ado About Nothing, a halting sonnet of his own pure brain fashioned to Beatrice is the last nail in the coffin of Benedict's claims to be a perpetual bachelor. It's triumphantly produced by the matchmakers at the end of the play. In Henry V, an extravagant and foppish French nobleman is characterised by his desire to write a sonnet to his horse. So these are all kind of these are all stupid, kind of laughable attempts at poetry, amateur poetry, by people who do something else, really. What about the actual poet, the poet's vocation? That's what Sinner says. Sinner, Sinner doesn't say, I write poetry. He says, I'm Sinner, the poet. We get, I guess, the conjunction of the lunatic, the lover, and the poet with which Duke Theseus greets the mechanical's play in Midsummer Night's Dream. And maybe more promisingly, a poet is among the parasites and hangers-on who are looking for the philanthropic patronage of Timon at the beginning of Timon of Athens. And I guess we get the, the so-called rival poet who's one of the more overwrought imaginary dramatist personae of the sonnets. So again, searching a good online text like folgerdigitaltexts.org can throw up this broader context and give you an idea maybe of where to look, let, look next. Poets and poetry, then, are not heroic figures in Shakespeare's works. They're usually, I think, set up for ridicule, even while the sonnets are explicit and other works are implicit about the power of poetry to move and to memorialise. But poet figures must be, in some way, self-reflexive. It's hard to imagine putting the figure of a poet into a written uh, dramatic poetry without using it as some kind of commentary, positive or negative, on writing or poetic identity. How might this broader context help us think about why the victim of the mob is a poet? If the role of the poet had ever been to be an innocent bystander on the political scene, it was very hard in 1599 to maintain that fiction of disengagement. In my lecture on As You Like It, I talk about the 1599 bishop's ban, the bishop's ban a new piece of Elizabethan legislation that imposed much more fierce and stringent censorship on printed material, and on printed material across some interesting categories, um, on history plays and satires in particular. The Bishop's Ban is a fascinating uh, piece of legislation to think about how um, literary works were, were conceived in this period. So uh, parts of the Bishop's Ban are about particular authors, um, Nash, Thomas Nash and Gabriel Harvey's work was banned in toto, so, so the author figure there is the most important uh, thing to be censored. Particular works, named works by satirists, including uh, Marston, Gilpin and Hall, were, were named. And English history, the genre, whether in print or performance, became a genre subject <coughs> to privy, direct Privy Council control. So the Bishop's Ban, which results in a number of titles being publicly burned in London in June 1599, gives an interesting and much more fraught context for what poetry might do in the political world uh, at the point when Shakespeare's writing Julius Caesar. We can already conjecture that the Bishop's Ban has an impact on Shakespeare's work. The move to Roman history after a series of nine plays based on English history seems to be 
a direct response to the increased surveillance of representations of the medieval English past. And since unusually for a Shakespeare play, we have a pretty close idea of when Julius Caesar was performed, we know that it comes after the bishop's ban. A Swiss tourist called Thomas Platter saw Julius Caesar at the newly built Globe Theatre towards the end of September 1599. He has disappointingly little to say about it, except that it was pleasingly performed, and that at the end they danced together admirably and exceedingly gracefully according to their custom, two in each group dressed in men's and two in women's apparel. Quite interesting to remember that the apparently final solemnity as the victorious Mark Antony and Octavius magnanimously arranged the funeral of the noblest Roman of them all, Brutus, uh, they all just jump up and start dancing a jig. The point of Pater's testimony, though, really, for what I'm talking about now, is that it puts the play in performance after the date of the bishop's ban, which was in the early summer of 1599. So maybe then we should see this cameo of Singer the Poet as some sort of gesture towards a new climate of poetic censorship. The first casualty of the post-Caesar regime in the play is a poet, or poetry itself, perhaps, just as the play has reached its own poetic heights in the rhetoric over Caesar's body. Poetry and politics are connected here, even then as Sinner the poet disavows that connection. And although the ultimate fate of Rome is decided through military action, Mark Antony has already effectively won through rhetoric or through poetry. Poetry is both the agent then and the victim of Roman political conflict. So even though the Sinner scene is so short, it seems burdened with trying to say something about the role of the poet in political life. The poet as bystander is brought resistantly into politics. And in case we miss it, the, the play has another go at this same suggestion. It has another poet. A figure called, with un wonderful unnecessariness, another poet. Uh, if you look in the character list of any edition, um, uh, the Oxford edition by Arthur Humphreys, but any modern edition has another character called another poet. We've already had another sinner, now we have another poet. Something is going a bit wrong in the second half of the play, I think. That's actually quite often the case uh, in the second half of Shakespeare's plays. Just as it all unravels for Brutus and Cassius, so it unravels a little bit for Shakespeare. We get two versions of Portia's death, for instance. So we get lots of these echoes or repetitions, which are either mistakes or kind of ghostly um, uh, repeats, depending uh, how you want to interpret them. Something about that repetition idea, though, that tragedy becomes farce, is unspooling out. And inevitably, for what I've been talking about, one of those repetitions is this random poet. Poet interrupts Brutus and Cassius just at the point when they have reconciled their quarrel in Act 4, Scene 2. Unlike Sinner, this poet even shows off his vocation. This wonderful couplet. Love and be friends, as two such men should be, for I have seen more years, I'm sure, than ye. So, I mean, he's a bad poet. Isn't he? I think people meant to see that that's a bad piece of bad poetry and that a rhyming couplet stands out, really, uh, in this play where there are no other couplets. Cassius laughs at these vile rhymes. The poet is banished from the stage. It's even more random than the sin of the poet uh, element. What is this poet doing hang, hanging around uh, in the sort of battle tents uh, uh, of Brutus and Cassius? And, and why does he just come to say something so, uh, so pointless? 
uh, in the sources, he's a philosopher. You can see, you know, obviously, poets and philosophers are, uh, have, have some relation, but to take away the character of philosopher and put in poet instead, I think uh, somehow does something to emphasise the importance of the poet figure in this play. So if this another poet is so impotent, why bother to put him there at all? Poets keep pushing at the door of this play, it seems to me, and that duplication must be saying something about the role of poetry in a political play. The poets, like the play's soothsayers, are marginal figures whose interventions are at once pointless and weighty with significance. The role of the poet, then, is at once important and anticlimactic. The two poets are implicated in, and witnesses to, political machinations to which they're also constructed as strangers. So, the death of Sin of the Poet seems to me a cameo scene of Julius Caesar that we can best think about in terms of the structure of the whole play, its rhythms, its echoes, and its contrasts. In a play which is self-consciously about interpretation, this scene figures a sort of interpretive void that it's important that we identify before or instead of rushing to fill it. It's something not altogether positive, but insistent about the role of the poet in times of political upheaval that might have resonated strongly in the immediate aftermath of the Bishop's Ban censorship of 1599. Next week, I'm going to talk about Love's Labour's Lost. Uh, I wish I hadn't already wasted what now seems to be the overarching question for this play, WTF. I already wrote, uh, spoke about that in Winter's Tale, which now seems to have been, as I say, a bit of a waste. Uh, it would have been a perfect focus for uh, Love's Labour's Lost, but I'm going to try and talk, I think, about loss. What's lost uh, in Love's Labour's Lost? So maybe you'll come back then. Thank you.